Let us pray together. Lord, we know that you teach that if we love you, we will keep your commandments, and that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But we also know that there is such a thing as legalism, and that legalists were your bitterest enemies when you were here in your earthly ministry. We need you to teach us the difference. Teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, indeed, the the line between loving obedience and loveless legalism can be a tough line to discern. Uh, You think, what, what uh, what are the sorts of things a loving wife might do? She might keep the house clean. She might prepare dinner for her husband. She might cart the children to appointments and whatnot. But is it possible to do those things without love? Or what are the things a loving husband might do? Of course, he'd be faithful, he'd work hard, he'd come home every night, he'd protect his family, and and on and on. But is it possible to do those things without love? Or what would a loving child do? Respect his parents, do his chores, be obedient. But can you do that without love? In fact, can the forms of love be made a replacement for love? Can you come up with a complex system of forms of love and comfort yourself that you have love because you do those things when really none of them is motivated by love. Can form become a substitute for love? Well, indeed it can. And as we've seen many times, that is where many of the Jews were in Jesus' day. That was kind of the target of the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness, what did Jesus say, must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what was that righteousness? It was all formal. It was a series of things they devised in their human traditions built on the Word of God and at some angle from the Word of God. And they were a great show of love and devotion, but that's all they were. They were a show of love and devotion. So what's the solution? Well, it's not a a loving antinomianism, you know, where you say, well, I'm just going to love God and do whatever. It doesn't matter what I do. And the solution is not a loveless commitment to duty and the forms of law and obedience either. No, the solution is, well, let's see. And this section is going to show us. So let's just dig right in. Uh, And let me read to you my translation. At that point, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields. Now his disciples became hungry and began to pluck ears of grain and to eat. All right, we'll pause there. First Roman numeral one, then we see the disciples' coherent actions. When I say their coherent actions, we're going to see the things they do make perfect sense. They're, there's no art or subterfuge to them. They, they just are what they look like, and yet somebody's going to have a big problem with those actions. The disciples' coherent actions, and we need to understand the background because notice Matthew writes, at that point Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields. Well, that's a very important point. In fact, did you notice the word that we heard eight times in the reading that we've not seen before in Matthew? What was that word? Sabbath. In fact, it occurs eight times in this section and only three times in the rest of the whole gospel. In fact, it occurs five times in the section we're looking at today. 
So yes, that's a big point of this section. So we need to understand the biblical Sabbath background. I'll have you turn to some passages with me. First turn to Genesis 2, just because that's so easy to find. And that's where we first went into the Sabbath. First chapter gave us the six days of creation, and he finished creation in those six days, God did. We read in verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested, the Hebrew word, Yishboth, Yishboth. the word Sabbath comes from that verb. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God Shabbath, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this is, people say it's the institution of the Sabbath, but is it? What do, you, what do you read there? You read that it was the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day, and he blessed it, and he made it holy. But did he tell Adam to do anything special on that day, or to do anything at all on that day? Well, not that we read. Did Adam do anything special on that day? Not that we read. Well, did, did Seth, did Abel, did uh, Enoch, did Methuselah, did Noah... Did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? Not that we read. There is no Sabbath observance recorded in Scripture. And in fact, there's really nothing much about it as an institution until there's a mention in Exodus 16, but particularly the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Turn there with me. And look at that with me. Exodus 20, also pretty easy to find. Second book in your Bible. Chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And verses 8 through 11 are the commandments regarding the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he says. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, note, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, this may seem uh, an unnecessary stress, but it will become important later. It's a Sabbath day to who? To the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, and so forth, anybody or anything in your gates. Verse 11, four and six days the Lord made heaven and earth, seeing all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, and they are commanded to rest, because he rested, Shabbat, and they rest, calling it a Sabbath. The word means rest. So, uh, what do we read here specifically they were to do? Well, it's a, it's a holy day to the Lord, so their minds should be on God, and basically that they should rest from normal activities. They, the, the, the work they do six days, don't do it on that day. And what other specifics do we read? Well, not really anything in this section. It's not specified beyond don't do what you do all the other days. Make this a holy day of rest to the Lord. They didn't work five days. They worked six days. And the Sabbath, uh, I remind you, was, was Saturday, not Sunday. So uh, the only things that are uh, specified later is don't gather wood on the Sabbath. Don't do business as usual on the Sabbath. It was to be a, a special day. And I'd add another little thing. Who's he making these Ten Commandments with? These are the Ten Commandments with Babylon, right? Or the Ten Commandments with the Assyrians or the Hittites or any of the other ites? No. Who's he making the Ten Commandments with? Who's this a covenant with? Israel, the the children of Jacob. uh, Pardon me, yes, the children of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob becomes Israel. 
In fact, Scripture says several times that the Sabbath was an Israelite observance, an observance for Israel, for the nation of Israel. I can give you just one uh, section. Exodus 31, verses 13 and 16 through 17. We won't turn there together. But Exodus 31, 13 and 16 through 17. You were to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. Verse 16, therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, and so forth. So this was a a, a part of the legislation with the nation of Israel. Now, we're not going to, today's sermon is not about Sabbath and the Christian, but let me just say, there's no Sabbath in the Christian. This is for the nation of Israel, and the only thing Paul really much says about the Sabbath is in Colossians 2, where he says it's a shadow, and Jesus is the fulfillment. So we don't call the Sunday the Christian Sabbath. It's not, it's not an institute for the Church of Christ, and it's an institute for the nation of Israel. And so we don't have to do all those, those contortions people do to explain why we're doing Sabbath, which is Saturday, but we're doing it on Sunday, and there's no point arguing which day it should be because the Sabbath is not a Christian institution. It's an institution for the nation of Israel. We worship on Sunday not because it's the Christian Sabbath. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because because Jesus rose on Sunday. And that that is the focus of our worship. So, that really in passing, that was absolutely no extra charge. So, turn to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. We read a bit of it at the call to worship. I hope you all were here for it. If you missed that, please make a point to get here before 1045 because all the service always hangs together. And so it did today. Psalm 92. Now, notice again, as I pointed out, this title is part of the inspired text, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So that tells us what this song is about. So what sorts of things are the focus of this song for the Sabbath? Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Oh, that's kind of cool. Doesn't that make you think morning and evening, first day, morning and evening, second day, kind of takes us back to creation. But read on. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, Now, note the word you hear three times in verses 4 and 5. For you, O Yahweh, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Yahweh. Your thoughts are very deep. So on, on the seventh day as an Israelite, I stop my works and I think about God's works. Do you see? Do you see how that's reflected in this Sabbath? And what's the focus? Is the focus on coming up with hundreds of rules for what constitutes work and not work? No. The focus is for me to stop what I normally do so I can focus on God and on God's works and on the fact that He's on high forever. Verse 8, His enemies will perish. Verse 9, And I forever can rest on Him. Verse 15, to declare that Yahweh is upright. He's my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. 
I can rest myself on him. I can lean my full weight on him knowing that he's faithful and he will support me. So there's, the, there's a psalm that kind of tells us what the spirit of the Sabbath was. And to tell us more about what the spirit of the Sabbath in God's mind was to be, let me just read to you Isaiah 58, 13, because the New American Standard's a bit better, I think, on that verse. Isaiah 58, 13. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh, honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. So you see, it's just the same thing we see from different angles. I stop what I normally do in my ways and I focus my attention on God and His work. And he says, call it a delight. That's a good translation. It's a word meaning something that you just really think is delicious, something you really think is delightful, something that you really think is joyful. And honor it, he says. Well, that word really you could easily translate as uh, glorify it. It's the same word. Give it weight. Give it glory. So this is the, the biblical background of what God intended the Sabbath to be for the nation of Israel. Now, we'll talk more about what it became in a moment, but I wanted you to have in your minds what the Bible teaches about it. And now, look, uh, letter B, at the incident background, the specific thing, again, at that point, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields. Now, his disciples became hungry and began to pluck ears of grain and to eat. Now, let me single out a couple of very important things about this, uh, which we need to understand in order to understand the rest of the section. It is not for nothing that Matthew makes the point. Why doesn't he just say it? At this point, they went through the, eat, the, the fields and began to eat wheat. Why doesn't he just say that? It would have said the same thing, right? But he wants to make this point. This is at Jesus' instigation. Why are the disciples in the field? Because they're following Jesus, literally. So why are they hungry? Because he's been keeping them busy. I guess he must have kept them busy past mealtime. So here they are walking through the, the fields on the Sabbath. Does Jesus know it's Sabbath? Jesus knows it's Sabbath. And he brings them through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. They're there because of him. He's leading them there. They eat and so forth. But the only reason they're there and hungry and have this opportunity to eat is because they follow Jesus there. Uh, another point I want to make, if you're a, a King Jameser, don't, don't picture that they're following, walking through a Kansas cornfield picking off ears of corn, okay? Because there was no corn There was no maize in Palestine. Uh, The corn is an old uh, pre-maize word in the King James to describe wheat or barley. This was more likely wheat or barley that they were walking through and they were plucking and they were rolling in their hands and eating. And that was perfectly legal. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.25 says, you go through your neighbor's field, you you can pluck off heads and eat them. Just don't bring a sickle and a bag and harvest their field. But if you walk through and you're hungry, like we might say, if you walk through a, somebody's apple orchard or whatever, you can pluck an apple and eat it. Just don't bring a, a pickup and, and people to reap the, 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 the apples. But if you're hungry, take an apple. You see? That was Deuteronomy 23:25. So there is the coherent actions of the disciples. They're perfectly legal. They made perfect sense. And they were there because of Jesus. These are the important factors. Well, next... And you notice this divides into three. The story divides into three. That's the first part. The second part is the Pharisees' caustic accusation in verse 2. From the disciples' coherent actions, we come to the Pharisees' caustic, burning, cutting accusation. But the Pharisees, when they saw, said to him, 
Look, your disciples are doing that which is not allowable to do on the Sabbath. Now, it's cool how Matthew puts this. He says in verse 1, the disciples began to pluck ears and to eat. And as soon as the Pharisees saw it, they cried out. So obviously they're following him around. This is what they're doing with their Sabbath, following and watching Jesus in a friendly way, right? Not at all. And we'll see that particularly in the next story next week, Lord willing. But no, no, they're not following friendly at all. And it's like they're watching for this as soon as they see them doing this. And before they've hardly got a grain in their mouths, they cry out, look, your disciples who you're responsible for are doing that which is not allowable. So let's look first, letter A, at the specific picture. The specific picture, what is their beef, in other words? What is their beef with what they're doing? Well, their beef is that like in most things, they had reduced the Sabbath to an extremely complicated, bore, uh, burdensome series of formulas. In fact, the Mishnah, which is teaching on the law that created somewhere between 50 years before Jesus and a century or two after, the Mishnah listed out 39 prohibitions of things that you can't do on the Sabbath. Let me just read it in part. The principal acts of labor, in other words, these are just the main things, uh, prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one, and they are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, fruit cleaning, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, wool shearing, bleaching, combing, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two spindle trees, weaving two threads, separating two threads in the warp, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing on with two stitches, tearing in order to sew together with two stitches, hunting deer, slaughtering deer, skinning deer, salting deer, Preparing the table, scraping the hair off, cutting it, writing two letters, in other words, two letters of the alphabet. One might be okay, but two's work. Which, if you've seen Hebrew, it is. But um, Erasing in order to write two letters. So writing two letters or erasing so you can write two letters. By building, demolishing in order to rebuild, kindling, extinguishing fire, hammering, transferring from one place to another. These are the principal acts of labor, they say. But it was broken down into many other specifics. For instance, this is the whole idea of what was called building a fence around the law. In other words, if this is the sin, well, then we'll clear an area of a mile in every direction so that you don't even get near that sin. So an example of that, for instance, is a woman could not look in a mirror. Why? Well, she might see a a white hair and be tempted to, that's work. You don't want to do that. Uh, what's another one? Well, uh, you can't drag a chair. Why not? Because you might plow when you drag the chair. I, I kid you not. Um, you, need, you couldn't go more than a Sabbath day's journey. That was about 3,000 feet. But, there, but they found a way around it, which just shows you the heart of the whole thing. If a man buried his comb under a rock 3,000 feet from his home, then that could count as his property. So he could go another 3,000 feet, you know. So was this, did this come from a heart of love for God? No, this came from a way to work the system. Uh, and there were many others. For instance, could you throw a rock in the air? Yes, you could if you caught it with the other hand. But if you caught it for the same hand, that'd be work. Could you pick up your kid? Yes, you could, but be careful to make sure that he's not carrying a rock. 
because then you'd be... And this is the way that it worked. I mean, there are many, many others besides this. This is the spirit of legalism uh, that was made of the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to circle around to that again in just a moment. But let's look at the larger picture, letter B. What's going on here? And why did Matthew come to this in the flow of his telling us about Jesus? Well, remind me again, what was the new word that we ran into in this section that Matthew says over and over and over again? That word is... Sabbath. That's right. Thank you. Well done. And remind me, Hebrew scholars that you are, what does the word Sabbath mean? Rest. That's right. Rest now. Rest. Huh. Had Jesus just said something about rest in the story just in front of this story? Oh, look how convenient. It's there for you on your outline. Let's remind ourselves. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come here to me, all who are laboring and have been loaded down, and I myself will give you... What's the word? Rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, you say, Pastor Dan, I noticed that. There's that word rest, and then there's Sabbath, which means rest all over the next story. Now, Pastor Dan, I'm wondering this. Yes, I say. Jesus spoke in Greek, did he not? Yes, he did, I say. Well, Pastor Dan, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, and so in Hebrew it was Shabbat or Shabbaton, right? Yes, you're right. That's very good. Well, Pastor Dan, was the Greek word that Jesus used ever used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate that Hebrew word? And I say, you know, it was. And would Jesus' hearers who knew Greek and Hebrew have picked up on that? You know, they might very well have. Well, you ask, observant student of the Bible that you are, do you think that there's a a flow here? Do you think that the reason why Matthew tells this story comes out of Jesus calling to rest? And what did Jesus say? You who who are laboring and have been loaded down. Is Matthew teaching us something there? You know, I say, I think you're on to something. Because how were they laboring and loaded down? Well, this is the great genius of legalism to take take a day of rest and turn it into a work. (laughs) To take a day that's all about resting and make it a burdensome, dreary, one false move and you're dead, literally, terrible thing. But this is what they had done to the law of God. Jesus offers rest to those who are laboring under legalism and man-made rules and man-made teaching because none of that came from the Scripture. That came from them making a formula that made them look holy and like they loved God when the heart wasn't there at all. That's the connection. Legalism's dark genius is taking a day of rest and turning it into a work. That's what legalism does. So chapter 12 has two examples, and we're looking at the first today, two examples of how people labored and were burdened under legalism. And Jesus, who, as we will see, is Lord of the Sabbath, and only Jesus can give true rest to which he calls all It's 
And we'll see further that as the Lord of the Sabbath, not only can he give true rest, but he can define what work and what rest is. It's his to define, and it's his to give. That's the larger picture. So now Roman numeral three, the Lord's counterattack in verses three through eight. The Jews have ahawed him again. We've got Jesus now. (laughs) And as always, it works out about the same that it always works out. They don't have him at all. And he turns as a counterattack. Now, first, before I even want to talk about this, you notice he says, see what your disciples are doing. So what does Jesus have an opportunity to do if if he wanted to? Well, he could throw them under the bus so that they're not mad at him. Boys, stop that. What are you thinking? It's the Sabbath. But does Jesus do that? No. Have you ever worked for somebody like that? Yes. (laughs) I think of my second job uh, was at at Sears Roebuck in the catalog pickup department. And uh, at least one day a week, I had to give people the stuff that they had ordered. Um, You kids can ask your parents what a catalog is and what a catalog pickup would have been if your parents are very old. Um, So... uh, you know, and it was explained to me what our, what our standards were for controls, uh, for, for returns, and what people had to do. And so I would get and I would do what I was told was my job. And if a customer would complain, then I'd have to get my supervisor. And what would my supervisor do? Throw me right under the bus. Say, well, he's new. And then just would break the rule that I was told to keep. But it's because I'm new. Well, it had nothing to do with me. I guess I was too new to know that it wasn't a real rule or something. And I felt sorry for the people who didn't complain because they could have just complained and they wouldn't have had to do what the other people did. So, um, but Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't throw his disciples under the bus. In fact, I'm sure he made them very sorry that they brought it up, the Pharisees. The first thing we see, Roman number, uh, sorry, letter A, is three question marks. Jesus responds with three questions. One is kind of one question broken up into two, but there are three question marks here. And Jesus does this a lot, you, you will notice. Jesus often answers a question or a challenge with a question. We could learn from that. He often turns it around into something else to try to get them to think. Or I should say at least give them an opportunity to think, if they were so inclined. So, first we see two questions from prophetic history verses 3 and 4. I say prophetic history because the, the history books were in the division called the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. So they called First and Second Samuel, they were among the books of the prophets because they believed they were written by prophets. Um, so two questions from prophetic history, and the first is a general question, verse 3. But he said to them, did you not read? <laughs> Sorry, that just cracks me up. Did you not read? So these guys pride themselves as being the experts on the Bible. In fact, they don't hardly need the Bible. They've got the Bible and so much more. And he says, uh, did you ever read this in the Bible? It'd be like if you went up to some big name, famous Bible expert, false teacher, and said to him in public, so um, did you ever read Galatians? (laughs) Or... Did you ever read Genesis? Or like, did you ever read the New Testament? Or the Bible, you know? And that would be obviously very insulting. It'd be a slap in the face. Indeed, it was meant to be very insulting and a slap in the face. And an opportunity for them to humble themselves 
But of course they didn't. And, and this is the thing when God confronts us. We really have two choices. We can respond in pride, in which case we will end up humiliated. Or we can respond in humility, in which, we, in which case we will end up instructed and maturing. But of course every time they reach for pride, and so they will here. But he says, did you not read what David did when he became hungry and those with him? So this is from 1 Samuel chapter 21, and he's just sort of asking them, did you ever read that story, (laughs) what David did when the people with him became hungry, like I, the son of David, am doing when the people with me became hungry? Did you ever read that story? And and then now comes the specific question in verse 4. It starts with an interrogative word, an interrogative uh, word, posts, and that's why I see it as two questions. It's, it's like when you say to your wife, uh, maybe, um, do you remember that, that restaurant in Fredericksburg? And she just looks blank. And you say, the one that was outdoors with the torches and the hanging plants and the mariachi band. And then, oh, okay. And this is like that. He says, did you ever read about what David did when he, got, when he was hungry and those with him were hungry? And they're just looking blank. Where are you going with this? They don't even see. So he asked the specific question, verse 4. How they entered into the house of God and ate the bread of presentation, which was not allowable. Oh, there's their word. Your disciples are doing what's not allowable on the Sabbaths. And so Jesus picks up that word. And David went into the house of God and ate the bread of presentation, which is not allowable for him to eat, nor for those who were with him except for the priests only. So yeah, they'd read the story. Did they read the details of the story? Did they notice what happened there? How David ate the showbread, as we call it, or the shoe bread, if you're a King Jameser, uh, the, the bread of presentation, 12 loaves baked every Sabbath and put out in the holy place, uh, laid out, presented before the Lord. And only priests ate those bread, but, but David on the run from King Saul, having been anointed king, David on the run comes by and he's, he and his men are hungry and he asks for something to eat and the priest says, all we've got is the showbread, and that's, that's not for David. That's just for the priest. And yet David reasons with the priest, and the priest ends up permitting him, letting him do it, letting him eat this showbread, you see. And uh, just note, by the way, he says, entered the house of God. It, it is going to be interesting, he said that, instead of just temple or tabernacle or something. But the house of God, he entered the house of he, entered into the house of God and ate this showbread. So who's David? Well, David is God's man, a man after God's own heart. Who's David? Well, he's the anointed king of Israel. At this point, he's the true king of Israel. Saul is still on the throne, but Saul's to be removed from the throne. Well, who else is David? Well, he's the forefather of the Messiah. In fact, what was the first verse of Matthew's gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So that was a title of the Messiah because he would be the greater David. He would be David's greater son. David is a type, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And so David here, the priest allows David and his men to eat this bread, which technically they should not have been able to eat. But showing him mercy in his need, he lets him eat the bread and lets his men eat the bread. Jesus says, didn't you ever read that story? There's no record of of any condemnation or punishment for doing that. But it's right there in the Bible you say you believe in. Did you ever read that? 
So he asks two questions from the prophetic history, and then number two, he asks one question from the law. One question from the law. Or did you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane, quote-unquote, the Sabbath, yet are guiltless? Well, you know what's he talking about there, and that's, that's in, the, in the Pentateuch. That's in the law of Moses. What's he talking about? Did the priests get Sabbath off? No, they didn't get the Sabbath off. I mean, sometimes I'll joke with somebody who talked to me about doing something on Sunday, and I say, oh, no, I work Sundays. <laughs> I work Sundays. And, well, they worked Saturdays. In fact, some of the uh, regulations, they worked twice as hard in some ways on Saturday, but they didn't get Saturday off. So since the, the, the law of Moses says that to work on the Sabbath is to profane the Sabbath, and they work on the Sabbath, well, Jesus says they profane the Sabbath, Right? Right, formally, technically, but did God judge them for it? Well, no, because God t- they're doing what God told them to do. So obviously they can't be sinning against God by obeying God and doing the work of priests. Did you ever read that, even? Did you read that? And they're guiltless. So this should have slowed their leap to judgment, so, but it didn't, these three question marks. So these three question marks are followed by three blast marks. Three blast marks, like impact craters, places where Jesus said things to them. (laughs) Places where Pharisees used to be standing and Jesus said something. Three blast marks. And they will describe, these three blast marks, what their real problem is. And their real problem is threefold. Number one, their basic your basic problem is, you don't know what I am. You don't know what I am. Verse 5. And I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, you've read that a bunch of times. Reading it, has it struck you what an enormous thing Jesus is saying? What was the temple? The temple was was the house of God, what people call the church, but this building is not the house of God. But the temple was the house of God in that God commanded that it be built. God told exactly how he wanted it built. God said he would put his name there. He would speak to them from between the cherubim. He was to be worshipped there. He was associated with that. His eyes would be on that house. His heart would be towards that house. So it was very much... And and, and when it was made, uh, both the tabernacle and the temple after David's time, what did God do to mark it as his place? There was a visible manifestation of the glory of God there to show that God was to be worshipped there. Of course, he couldn't be confined to that building. Solomon says, the heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you, how much less this house I've built. But that was where he made himself known, where he made himself to be worshipped. It was how he said he would walk among them and be in their midst because of that tabernacle, later because of that temple. It was a huge thing. I mean, it was, a, it was a massive... Well, that was where God was. That building is where God was. And what's Jesus saying about himself? Something greater than that is here. What is he saying? Greater than the temple where God lives. And why does he say something? Because he's pointing to the quality of his being, the quality of his character, what he was, not just his person. He'll talk about that later. But here he's talking just about what it is that he is and what is it that he is. 
Well, he's greater than a symbolic presentation of the presence of God. How is he greater than that? Because he's the real presence of God. Because in the beginning beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Something greater than the tabernacle. He is the house of God. He is the presence of God. And they just don't get that. And that's their big problem. They just don't. They're up complaining to him about what his disciples are doing, breaking their man-made rules. They don't know who they're talking to. And I, I take you back to, this, to, to the passage we just studied. Why don't they get who he is? Matthew eleven twenty five twenty six twenty seven. I acknowledge you, Father, that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending. And what does verse 27 say? No one knows the Son except the Father, and the one who it's the Father's delight to reveal him to, and that wasn't them. That's why they didn't get him. It was hidden from them by God. So they didn't get what he was. And this closes Jesus' argument, why he appeals to David, why he talks about the priest. Now, now follow this. I'll do my best to make this uh, simple because I've had to make it simple so I can understand it. So I'll share with you. David, now, did David consider himself to be bigger and more important than the temple? No, he didn't. But he went up to the temple and asked for, well, you could say he asked for mercy. He asked for mercy. Though it wasn't technically right, but he asked for mercy for himself and his men. And he felt free to do that. And the, free, the priest, the representative of God, decided to allow it. And no judgment was given to David or the priest for the priest deciding to allow this at the house of God. There's the first. And the second is the priests. They're working on the, on the Sabbath, yeah. They're profaning it, technically, but they're not because they're serving God in his presence at his tabernacle according to his word. And Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. So can he decide who can eat on the Sabbath like the priest could? Yes, he could. And can his servants, if, he, if it pleases him, technically work on the Sabbath? Yes, they can. Why? Because Just as surely as the priests were serving the temple in presence of God, the disciples were serving the presence of God in Jesus. If the priests were priests of Yahweh, the disciples are priests of Yahweh, serving Him, and they're literally there because they're literally walking with God incarnate. They're literally there serving God and serving at His pleasure. So yes, these were good examples, and they clinch His case. Uh, Their problem is, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I am. Number one, you don't know what I am. Second problem, your other basic problem is, you don't know what God wants. You think you're doing God's will with all these rules and regulations and persecuting people for eating wheat, walking through a wheat field. You don't even know what, what God wants. And the trouble is, you would have if you'd done what I told you to do back a couple of chapters ago. In chapter 9, when they said, how can you hang around with these people, these tax collectors and prostitutes and whatnot? And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. 
You go learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. He gave them a homework assignment, but they were way too smart for that. They were way too accomplished to do what Jesus said. And here it it comes back to bite them because they don't even know what God wants. God says in so many words, mercy is what I want and not sacrifice. In other words, not mere external observance as a substitute for a house of, for a heart of love. Uh, To cover over a loveless, mercenary, grasping, selfish heart. Mercy is what I want. So they missed the mercy in these stories. The priest showed David mercy. The priest showed David's men mercy. The the, the priests who serve and quote-unquote profane the Sabbath are shown mercy by God because they're doing what God wants them to do. But the Pharisees had no mercy for these hungry servants of God. They didn't see hungry men who were serving the Messiah. They just saw violations of their rules. Infraction of Penal Code 417-3-43. And and they were going to write them up for it. And they just didn't know anything about mercy. And that's legalism. Godly obedience springs from a heart of faith and love. Legalism makes forms the substitute of faith and love. They make forms as a show of faith and love to cover over the complete lack of of those graces in the heart. That's what legalism is. And that's what they were. And now Jesus has just shamed them from the law and the prophets, which they claim to be experts in. But he showed that they did not understand what God's word said. They didn't know what he was, and they didn't know what God wants. And they're going around telling everyone else what God wants. And thirdly, finally, you don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. Uh, It says verse 7 should be verse 8. Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, just by the way, a very aside aside, when we sing Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, there's that line, Lord Sebaoth is He. That's not this. Sebaoth is the Hebrew word. Well, we sing Sabaoth, sorry. It's the Hebrew word for hosts, the Lord of hosts. That's not this. Although Jesus is that too. (laughs) But this is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, the Son of Man, taking his favorite title for himself, drawn from Daniel chapter 7. You remember Daniel chapter 7, where the kingdoms of man are shown coming up from the great sea. Up from the great sea, they arise. And then the prophet sees one like a Son of Man coming down with the clouds of heaven. And that's the Lord Jesus. That's what he called himself most frequently, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is huge. What did I have you note from Exodus chapter 20, verse 10? The Sabbath day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So the Sabbath day is Yahweh's day. And Jesus here says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Who does he make himself to be? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's God. He thinks he is Yahweh incarnate. That this is exactly what he's saying. Yahweh says, "This is my day," and Jesus says, "I'm Lord of this day." Now he's he's one of three things. C.S. Lewis put it very well. I'll just rephrase it. He's one of three things. He he's he's either nutty as a fruitcake. I mean, crazy like a man who says he's a scrambled egg. 
Or he's demonic, which is going to be their go-to idiot answer. Or he's exactly who he says he's exactly who he says he is. And of course, I believe, we believe, we know for a fact he's exactly who he says he is. So this being the case, then whose place is it to say what is and is not allowable on the Sabbath? <laughs> is it the Pharisees' place to say what is and is not allowable? Or is it Jesus' place? Well, it's Jesus' place. He's greater than the temple, and he is Lord of the Sabbath. But if they loved God, well, they would love Jesus. If they revered God, they would revere Jesus, but instead they think they are in a position to be critics of Jesus, as does every unbeliever, as is our default setting because we all want to be as God and raise our thrones above the throne of God. And this is exactly what he does. This is the soul of human religion. This is the soul of the kingdom of man. This is the soul of legalism. So, going back to where we started. What is the solution then to figuring out the line between love and between loving obedience and legalism. What is the solution to finding the line between loving obedience and legalism? It's Jesus. Now, just as a sneak preview, any question you ask me what the ultimate solution is, I'm going to say it's Jesus. Because it is. Our real problems, the ultimate solution to them is Jesus. And so it is here. First of all, his worth is above all. He's God incarnate. The temple was a God-given picture of the presence of God. But Jesus is a living reality of the presence of God. Colossians 2.10, in him the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. So his worth is above all. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. So he not only can command rest and define rest, but he can give rest because of who he is. His worth is above all, and our solution is to come to him. We who uh, are weary and are heavily burdened, come to him, and he will give us rest as no other can. We come to Jesus in faith. We cling to Jesus in love. We take his yoke upon us out of faith and love to be his servants because of faith and love, because of his worthiness, and we walk with him. And as we walk with him, he gives us rest. He gives us every kind of rest. Rest from a guilty conscience, rest from an anxious heart, rest from the burdens of the world. Jesus gives that rest because he alone has accomplished that and achieved that and can impart that to us. Or the real solution is to come to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, and he will give us rest. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we ponder it. We don't want to rush past it. Something very deep and meaningful has been taught us and and shown us here. Uh, Man-made religion provides only the illusion of godliness and and only the similitude of love for God, only a cheap plastic imitation, a mask. But only Jesus can change the heart. Remove our heart of stone. Give us a heart on which he will write his laws, 
a heart that loves you, a heart that would submit to you, a heart that seeks after you, a heart that finds rest in you, not in material goods, not in fame, not in the fortunes of the world, but a rest in the smile of God, which we find in Jesus alone. Thank you for the assurance we have who've come to him. I pray for anyone here who's not come to him that that person will first of all see the reality of the situation and the glory of Christ and the depth of her or his need and that that person will come running to Christ for rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.